Well, let's join our hearts in prayer, if you would. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to be here this morning to open your word together, to learn about your son Jesus, the story of that word. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to understand and to apply what we hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. My favorite animated character of all time is Snoopy. And when I was a child, I had Snoopy stuff everywhere. I had Snoopy curtains and bedspread and a whole deal. And I, I'm still kind of partial to Snoopy, I'll be honest with you. The whole Peanuts gang, but Snoopy in particular, Joe Cool. I like him. And, and my children now have taken to reading some of the old comics. Of course, Charles Schultz passed away a few years ago. And, and obviously the series has ended, but we have several books that contain compilations of those comic strips and so on, and I think it's interesting and only fitting now that my daughter Lucy, whose name is an obvious throwback to the Peanuts gang, my daughter Lucy is, uh, has auditioned and received and is now performing in a play at Playhouse in the Park called You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and what a, what a fitting, uh, I guess, uh, way to, to bring it full, full circle. Many of the decorations that I had in my room as a child are sitting there now in the playhouse decorating that for the show that runs this weekend and the, and the next two. So if you don't have your tickets yet, I just I can, I can show you where you can get those. But, but anyway, in, in, the, in the play, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, my favorite song is the one called The Book Report. And it's a really well-written song, very funny. And uh, four of the main characters are trying to figure out how to write a book report on Peter Rabbit. And the hardest part, I don't know if you've ever had to write many book reports or uh, papers or whatever, but to me, often the hardest part is to write the introduction. Sometimes you know what you're going to say, but to introduce it to make sure that it's, it's something that sounds good at the beginning. And so these four characters are sitting there, and Lucy Van Pelt, in her personality, says this in opening her book report. Peter Rabbit is this stupid book about this stupid rabbit who steals vegetables from other people's gardens. That's how she opens it. Now, Schroeder, whose mind tends to wonder, he says the name of the book about which this book report is about is Peter Rabbit, which is about this rabbit. That's his introduction. Linus, who is the ever-philosophical and pensive one, he says, in examining a work such as Peter Rabbit, it is important that the superficial characteristics of this deceptively simple plot should not be allowed to blind the reader to the more substantial fabric of its deeper motivations. In this report, I plan to discuss the sociological implications of family pressures so great as to drive an otherwise moral rabbit to perform acts of thievery which he consciously knew were against the law. That's how he opens his book report. Charlie Brown, who is, of course, the ever-depressed, can't really get anything to go his way character in the Peanuts gang, can't seem to get started, so he sings to himself, if I start writing now when I'm not really rested, it could upset my thinking, which is no good at all. I'll get a fresh start tomorrow, and it's not due till Wednesday, so I'll have all of Tuesday unless something should happen. I work best under pressure, and there'll be lots of pressure if I wait till tomorrow, and that's how he begins. Maybe if you're a college student, you say, I work best under pressure, so I'll just wait till the very last minute, and then you're up all night somehow. The introduction to the book report they're doing, as in any book or story or whatever it may be, is vitally important. It sets the tone for what the rest of the paper or book or whatever is to be about. 
it's, it maybe gives you a little bit of a preview. It gives you an idea maybe on how to read it. It lets you know, here's what I'm writing about. And as we'll see this morning, the Bible passage for today forms an introduction to a great book of Scripture. We're in a series called Rooted in God's Word, and we've been trying to track down answers to three questions. The first is, what is the Bible? And if you haven't been with us, I encourage you to go back, maybe listen to those sermons or look at the notes. What is the Bible? We talked about the Bible is God's inspired Word, which means it's reliable and it's authoritative and it has great benefit for our lives. Then we looked at, why do I need it in my life? And we answered that question. And, and the last couple of weeks, we've been looking, how do I get it into my life? So we looked two weeks ago at how to receive the Scripture with the right attitude, to love and to delight in God's Word. Last week, we looked at how to listen to a sermon. Certainly, we can receive God's Word as it's preached week in and week out. This week, this morning, we're going to, to look at how do you get God's Word into your life through personal study. You may be someone here this morning who says, I try to read the Bible, but I, I just don't seem to get much out of it. I'm not sure what I'm doing wrong. I, I'd like to. I want to understand it. I want to apply it to my life. I believe it's God's Word and it has great value and it has great benefit for my life, but I'm not sure how to do that. Now, before we assume that people in church already are masters and experts at how to integrate the Scripture into their lives, most studies will show you that that's simply not the case. Some of us simply have never done that. We're ignorant of how to do it. doesn't mean we're stupid. We just don't know. So this morning, I hope to, to help you with some of that. Some of us have, have, it's been so long since we interacted with the Scripture that we've forgotten how to do it. Others just say, well, I just read the Bible because that's what I'm supposed to do. I hope this morning to show you a few things. Uh, my plan for the sermon this morning, and you'll, you'll kind of see this on your bulletin, I want to show you what is the truth of a great psalm. Psalm chapter 1 will be our focus this morning. I want to show you what the truth of that is for immediate application, for immediate response this morning. God may hit you with something as we read and as I preach this that, that you need to respond to this morning directly from this truth found only in that particular passage that we look at this morning. So that would be the immediate response. But more than that, as I preach Psalm chapter 1 and the truth, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to integrate a little quick guide to Bible study and application. So I'm going to show you how I arrived at what I arrived at from Psalm chapter 1 as we go along. That's the long-term deal. So I hope this morning to both give you a fish that you can chew on this morning and teach you how to fish so that as you leave here, you don't have to just come back next week for a fish that you have been feeding yourself and fishing all week long from Scripture. So you can follow along with the notes on the back of the bulletin. If you'd like to go online and do that with your phone or tablet or whatever, you can scan that little thing and you'll see some online notes. So I want to begin this morning uh, by giving you a quick guide to Bible study and application. So if you got your bulletin, flip it over, and I'll just show you the structure real quick. You'll see there, there's the, what it begins with, there's a, a truth about Psalm chapter 1. I'll just tell you that's coming later. It's put there at the top, just so you know this is the overarching truth, but we're going to work through that little guide below it, and then you'll see that be integrated. So for those of you whose minds are going to freak out if I don't go in the exact order that's on the back of the bulletin, I'm just telling you up front. I'm not going to go in the exact order on the back of the bulletin. So freak out now, come back to us, breathe again, and about 30 minutes from now you can pick back up with us, all right, after you've, you've recovered. So if you're going to, to study and apply the Bible, I want to give you a few principles this morning, the first of which is to consider a reading plan. Consider a Bible reading plan. I've talked with various people throughout my lifetime, my time in ministry, and they say, I, I, I don't know where to start. Where should I start reading the Bible? 
Well, I, I don't want to be the one to tell you exactly where to start reading the Bible. It may be for you. You need to start one place and maybe another. But I think it's important if you're going to begin reading the Bible or if you say, you know, my Bible time has just been a little stale. I'd like something fresh. What should I do? I would strongly consider a reading plan. There are full Bible reading plans. Maybe you made it your goal this year to read all the way through the Bible and you're not exactly sure how to do that. Or you say, I've never done that. I'd like to find out how. There are plans that will lead you day by day through certain numbers of chapters or books or whatever that you can read the whole Bible in a year. You say, I'm not sure I'm ready to take that on. Maybe you say, I just want to read the Old Testament. Or maybe I just want to focus on the New Testament. There are partial Bible reading plans as well. Or maybe you say, you know, I've always been interested in the book of Genesis or, or maybe the, the book of Revelation or maybe one of the Gospels. There are Bible book reading plans that you can access that will spread it out over a certain period of time. You can dictate however long you want that to be, and you can check those off. Or maybe you say, you know, Easter's coming up, and I really would just like to read about the resurrection. What about the cross and the resurrection? They're topical Bible reading plans that will lead you to various passages of Scripture that talk about certain topics that the Bible addresses. Or maybe you've caught on to the fact that your Bible is not arranged in chronological order. And you've tried to read it in chronological order and you've been very frustrated. You realize that the Old Testament that you and I have is not in chronological order? You have the books of law first. Then you have the books of, of history. Then you have the books of wisdom. Then you have the prophets. They're arranged by their type, not by their order in chronology. And you say, well, you know, I'd like to read maybe the Old Testament or maybe the New Testament in specific order. Even in the New Testament, the Gospels. They are sometimes arranged theologically to make a certain theological point, so certain activities are grouped together here, and then later on certain activities are grouped together. And if you try to trace a chronology, you're thinking, now wait just a minute, this guy, he doesn't have it in order. What's going on? Sometimes the purpose is not to get it in chronological order, but maybe you'd like to read it that way. There are chronological plans. Or maybe you say, you know, I just need something that I can take each and every day with me to work. And I want to read something in the morning that gives me uh, something that I can consider, a prayer to pray, some verses I can have in my mind, and you'd like a devotional guide. And, and maybe that's what, what right now you prefer. I want to give you two, two resources that you can write down, and, and you can go and find a Bible reading plan or, or maybe look at this devotional guide. The first is a website. Now, I'll tell you this. You may not be online, and that's fine. Come and see me, and I'll, I'll help you find some resources that are not online for a Bible reading plan, but write down this website is uversion, Y-O-U, version.com, uversion.com. Now, some of you have what's called the Bible app on your phone or your tablet or whatever. That's, that's where that came from. There's a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma called Life Church, and they have, free of charge, developed this particular website and these apps. Not only can you read the Bible and study it, make some notes through this website and through this app, but you can also establish and maintain a Bible reading plan. Some of you have already done that, I'm sure. So if you go to that and you say, I'd like a whole Bible or a partial Bible, they've got all kinds of options there that you can begin, and it will remind you and keep you up each day and so on and so forth. Again, if you're not a person who gets online or whatever, that's fine. Come and see me if you say, I'd like to read through the Bible. Can you help me find a plan? I'd be happy to do that, print you one out, give it to you, and you can use that. The devotional guide that I have found, I'll just give you one. There are lots of them. And, and as you talk about these things, maybe you'd have some other ideas as well. The devotional guide that I have found to be the one that I like the most, that I think just hits right real close to home, even though it's written a long time ago, is called My Utmost for His Highest. Some of you maybe have read that. It's by Oswald Chambers. My Utmost for His Highest. 
And it is each day a certain reading, a devotional reading from Oswald Chambers and a scripture with a reference to that. And so you get a little bit of both. I will tell you there are two versions to that. One is the old English kind of language and the other is the more modern. If I were you, I would choose the more modern. You may get a little frustrated with some of the old kinds of writing styles and so on. So you version and then my utmost for his highest. That will help you establish a plan for reading the Bible. Maybe that helps you this morning. The second thing that I would tell you to do as a guide to Bible study and application would be to ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance. To ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance. This is called illumination. When you ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance, be careful because you're not asking to learn something no one else has ever discovered in Scripture, ever in the history of Scripture, the history of the world. You're simply asking, Holy Spirit, reveal to me the meaning that's already there and show me how to apply it. So when you ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance, it's not for uniqueness, but for accuracy. You want to know how can I accurately understand? I'm not looking to go and dig and find some unique thing that no one's ever discovered so I can write a book and make millions. That's not what we're going for. We want to make sure when we read and understand the Scripture that we do it correctly and accurately. But why do you ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance? Well, the Bible is not meant to be understood merely in an educational or academic way, only in your mind. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ... The Bible is meant, yes, to make sense in your mind, but to penetrate deeper into your life, into your heart. So it's not just a mental exercise or something to get educated about. I'm just going to learn about the Bible. That's important, yes, but that's not where it stops. And it's only the Holy Spirit who can give you the insight, open your mind and your heart to receive the truth and the application of Scripture. You can't do that on your own. You can't be smart enough. we got some really smart people in this room. But you can't be smart enough just on your own to understand all the Bible means and how it should apply. The Holy Spirit wrote it, and so only He can give you the insight that you need. I equate this to if you're going to study the Bible without asking for the Holy Spirit's guidance, it's as if you're taking a trip with no map and no GPS. Now, for some of you, you say, what's a map? For others, you say, what's a GPS? So for both, I say it's, it's a guide to get where you need to go. A map certainly on paper, for some of you have used those for years, and others you say, I like mine stuck to the windshield or sitting on the dashboard and it tells me where to turn. I don't really go anywhere without my GPS. Even when I'm going somewhere I know, I sometimes turn it on just to make sure. Or if there's a, 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 some kind of traffic delay, I can get around it and so on. If I'm going somewhere, if I want to get there, I want directions. I want guidance. And the same is true with studying the Bible. We have to have the guidance of the Holy Spirit to arrive accurately at the truth of what the Scripture is saying. Now, not only studying it, but applying it requires the influence of the Holy Spirit because I would equate trying to apply the Bible without the guidance of the Holy Spirit is like trying to go to Disney World with no plan. Some of you have been to Disney, and you walk in there, and you just are overwhelmed, and you start looking around, and you see all the other people who are just kind of stunned. There's so much to see. Where do we go? And then they wander around right in front of you. And then they wander back over here and you think, did you not plan for this at least just a little bit? You walk in and now we'll figure it out. Think about applying the scripture. If you arrive at the meaning of scripture, here you are coming to Disney World and then you don't know what to do with it, you're still lost. You still don't know how to take what you know and where you've gotten to and apply it to your life. My kids love to go to Disney World. 
They have no idea how hard it is for us on the front side to plan every single thing we're going to do. We take it with us, and we've got our deal and all that stuff. If we didn't do that, Nancy and I would go nuts. We'd absolutely go nuts. We'd, we'd leave every about two days. We'd just, some people, I think, get lost in the park, and they're never found again. They just they wander off somewhere. and you know, If you think about it, studying the Scripture, you're going to arrive at a destination of meaning. It requires direction and guidance. Applying the Scripture, enjoying what it's about, and, and seeing it lived out, you need guidance. And so we ask the Holy Spirit for guidance. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 1, and here's what we're going to do. As I said, I want to show you the truth, and I want to walk you through how to arrive in a particular Bible passage at a truth. Now, I've just told you to consider a reading plan, so we're going to read the Scripture in just a moment. And I've also told you to ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance. So that's what we'll do right now. Let's pray together, and we'll ask for the Holy Spirit to guide us in the next few moments as we look at the Scripture. Holy Spirit, we ask that as you are the divine author, that you would impart to us the meaning and help us to understand the meaning and application of Psalm chapter 1. We pray, Lord, that our minds would be clear and our hearts would be ready to receive the truth from this Scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me in Psalm chapter 1, and the words will be on the screen, and I want to, to read it as we look at it this morning. How happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path of sinners, or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not survive the judgment, and sinners will not be in the community of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. As you study a particular Bible passage, there are three things, and you see them on your bulletin, that sort of progress. One leads to the next, which leads to the next. The first of which, the word is context. Context. Now, when it comes to understanding the Bible, let me just say this, and I, I may be exaggerating just a tad, but I really believe that context is everything. I, I love talking with folks about how to understand the Bible more, and one thing that I always try to tell them is don't forget the context. So maybe when you study a particular Bible verse or paragraph or chapter or book, you might want to read it a few times just to get familiar with it and determine where it begins and where it ends. And then one thing you certainly want to consider is what would be called the literary context. You realize that every word, every phrase in the Bible is connected to the words and the phrases and the paragraphs around it. They're not just stuck there randomly. The words and the phrases are connected to those around it on purpose. And so at the very least, when you read the Bible, you ought to consider what's before and what's after. What's written before and what's written after the, the paragraphs, the words, whatever that you're reading. If you don't do that, then you're guilty of what's called taking it out of context. Have you ever heard someone say, I was misquoted? They took what I said out of context. What does that mean? That means you don't know what I really meant if only you hear this one little snippet. I've gone to this before and I've shared this with you in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. A famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I've seen that on posters for athletes and so on. I've seen people who are facing whatever, a test or whatever it may be at, at, at school, and I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That means I can make an A because I didn't study, but Christ gives me strength. 
I can win this game, I'm not really prepared, and I'm not nearly as good as my opponent, but Christ gives me strength. Realize that Paul's not talking about taking a, a test in school, and he's not talking about uh, winning a game in athletics. What he's talking about is seen in what's before and what's after. And I'll leave that for you to go and read what's before and what's after. The context matters. Those words are there for a specific purpose. And also, not only what's before and what's after, but every word, every phrase, every chapter, every paragraph, whatever, in Scripture is expressed through a certain form or type of writing or literature. It's called a genre. Now, that word is, sounds really fancy, but it's just a type of writing. Now, the type of writing in the Scripture matters, and don't miss this. It matters because it dictates how you and I should approach the statement, the passage, the chapter, or the book of Scripture that we're reading. And if you don't identify the type of writing, you won't fully understand what you're reading. Now, we do, we do the, the same stuff today. This is not foreign to us. It may sound really academic, but it's not. It's just everyday stuff. You and I know the difference between how we're supposed to read a novel and how we're supposed to read the newspaper. Think about it. You don't approach a novel the same way you do a newspaper. And even in the newspaper itself, you don't approach a classified ad the same way you do the front page headline. You read a box score differently than you do a comic strip. I mean, that, you know there's different types of writing. You know that. There's a difference, we know, between how we should receive a modern poem and, uh, and say, a speech by, by someone in leadership. We know there's a difference. We cannot, humans cannot communicate, whether it's in speaking or in writing, without using genre or without using a certain type of speaking or writing, and the Bible's no different. It's communicated by the Holy Spirit, but through humans, so He uses our methods of, of, of communication. So if we're to understand the Bible, we've got to understand the type of writing that's used. Now, there are different types. Uh, you see poetry in the Bible. Now, poetry back then was different, not necessarily as rhyming the key, but parallelism is the key. This and then this, or this against this, or this plus this, or whatever. But poetry in the Bible, of course, is very expressive, very emotional, uses a lot of imagery. You see in Psalm chapter 1, what kind of imagery does it use? He is like a tree. Now, if you're reading that and saying, well, this is describing an actual event that took place. This man followed God's laws, and he became a tree. Think about it. And he was planted next to streams of water. And he grew up and he sprouted and he had leaves and, they, and he was an evergreen. They never withered. So this man who studied God's laws became an evergreen tree. I'm not sure I want to study God's laws. I like being human. I mean, think about it. We see this. Poetry is different. It's imagery and so on. Now, you see poetry mostly in the Psalms and the Proverbs and books of prophecy and so on. There's also prose, of course, which is the, anything that's not poetry. You see narrative and historical accounts, reporting of what's happened, uh, telling a story, reporting what will happen, and so on. So if you think, as I said, that you're reading poetry uh, and you're going to read it as something that actually happened in exact terms that's described there, you're going to be a little confused. You're going to think that a man followed God's word and became an evergreen tree. And you will put your Bible down and never touch it again because that's kind of scary. But that's not what the genre of Psalm chapter 1 is. It helps to understand the type of writing. So you understand the literary context and then also the historical context. You think about this in modern terms. If I were to tell you a story, if after the service you come back and we're talking about something and I'm telling you a story, it likely has a, a specific purpose. I'm telling you that for a reason. There may even be something that is a lesson that maybe I'm trying to teach or I'm going to use as an example to show you that. If I send uh, you an, an email or a text and communicate with you in some way, 
it, it will depend, what I include there will depend on how well you and I know one another, uh, the commonalities that we have. Uh, maybe we've grown up in the same part of the country, the same religious background, and so I can include some details and leave others out because we already know those things. Certainly, historical context applies also to the Bible. All of, uh, all of the things about the author and the audience and their relationship, the situation that the author and the audience are facing, uh, the reason for which the author wrote that particular book or letter, the certain places, the times, the ways that things happen in the Bible, they matter, just as they would today if you and I are communicating. So all of that, when we understand what's going on and who's involved and what are they doing and when is it happening and where and so on, all of that helps to reveal what the author intended for his audience to understand, and it helps us to see the ancient truth and the timeless meaning of a particular passage. And without that information, in many cases, let's be honest, you and I are just guessing at what the Scripture means. We're going to pick something up and assume that the book of Judges was written yesterday, and it somehow is supposed to apply to our lives exactly as it's written just there for those people who lived so many thousands of years ago. You understand, you've got to understand what's happening and so on. So think about it in modern terms. The historical context obviously makes a difference. A study Bible, for example, would help you with some of that. Maybe you've got access online. There's some great tools online that you can look up. Or maybe you have a Bible dictionary, a Bible handbook. It gives you a little bit of background information. It's, it's helpful. If you want to know more about the Bible, I would strongly encourage you to consider that historical context. And then looking at also the biblical context. What else does the Bible have to say about what you're reading? Maybe this same author in, in the same chapter, same book, or a different book wrote something about this same topic. Or maybe the Old Testament, if you're reading, uh, say, Joshua, also speaks about this in another book. Or maybe the New Testament speaks about something that happened in the Old Testament. You realize that the, the revelation of God is progressive. It starts in the Old Testament and builds to the New. So you should expect that many things that are covered in the Old Testament will find their ultimate meaning and fulfillment in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. So... Uh, the Bible is the best commentary on itself, and if you know it, then you'll understand how it all fits together. Looking at Psalm chapter 1, the literary context, what type of writing is it? Well, it's a poem. So what should you expect when you go to the book of Psalms and you read this? You should expect imagery and emotion, and that's exactly what you see. The historical context of Psalm chapter 1, we don't know exactly to whom this was written, when it was written, but we can know if you do a little bit of study. That the book of Psalms was compiled over several thousands of years and then given essentially as a completed book, a compilation really of five books, given to the Hebrews as a worship guide. And if you do a little bit more study, which you find out, not very hard study, but you find out that Psalm chapter 1 was written as an introduction to all that. And it kind of lays out, here are the two paths that you could take in life and, and here's how to relate to God and so on through the book of Psalms. And it forms an introduction. So the author doesn't really matter as much. The specific audience that it was written to, when it was written, doesn't matter. But we understand that when the Hebrews got this as a completed collection of psalms, they would read Psalm chapter 1 as the introduction. And so we realize that all matters. You see the biblical context you probably have already thought of. Here's a sharp contrast between those who are godly and those who are not. That's not the only time in Scripture that that context is drawn. Certainly we see... Uh, throughout the books of law and the books of history, this contrast between God's people, those who love Him and follow Him, and those who don't. Jesus Himself said in Matthew chapter 7, there are two types of builders, those who build on the rock of His Word and those who build on the sand. And you see what's going to happen. What happens to the one? The foundation stays and the other one crumbles. You see in Psalm chapter 1 a similar idea. Jesus would go on to say in Matthew 25 that a judgment is coming. 
And there will be a separation from those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ and those who have not. And it will be for all eternity. What does it say in Psalm chapter uh, 1? The wicked will not, what, survive the judgment. There is a coming separation. So you see the biblical context, and that leads us to not only understand the context, but the next portion of that is original meaning. The original meaning. You see that progress. Once you understand context, that it drives the meaning, then you can begin to work on the meaning, which eventually, as we'll see in a moment, will drive the application. Context drives meaning, which drives application. Now, the original meaning of Scripture when you begin to understand it, it's based on the problems, the questions, the issues, the concerns that are faced by the original audience and that are raised by the original author and how he handles those things. I'm a firm believer that there is one central or one main idea in every passage of Scripture. I don't believe that, there, that one Scripture means four or five different things. I believe there's one specific meaning for an overall passage. Now, it's supported by several truths in that passage. But each Sunday, you see this reflected in the way that I preach. Each Sunday, there is one central truth, and I don't always put it in a box on the back of your bulletin, but it's there. Here is the truth or the central idea or whatever we've got to remember, and that's there. That's what I have discovered and, and have, have believe is the main point of the passage we're looking at that morning. I really am a firm believer that it means one thing, and then there are certain supporting truths. Now, one thing that you can do to look for original meaning is, is to look at the structure. Look back with me in Psalm chapter 1. What does it say here? Happy is the man who what? Who does not do this, this, and this. And instead, he does so on and so forth in verses 2 and 3. Then there's a clear break, isn't there? The wicked, what? Are not like this. So you see there's an automatic contrast. Wait a minute. There's something about the structure that the psalmist is putting this person over here and this person over here. So the central idea, the main idea of this passage is going to have something to do with these two people and one of them being blessed by the Lord and the other one not. Then as you begin to examine the words themselves, and Austin, if you don't mind to put this, the scripture back up real quick uh, on the screen, if you look at some of the key words, if you were to read this and say, all right, how can I understand? Look at the words. Look at what's written, how they fit together. What? How happy. Now, that doesn't mean that they're blissfully unaware of the realities of life. Some folks are like that. They're just happy, and we're happy for them. But at the same time, this doesn't mean just mainly happy according to circumstances. This means blessed and fulfilled. You do a little bit of word study. You can look those words up online or in a good study Bible or maybe something like that. This person is blessed and fulfilled because why? They don't take the advice of the wicked. They don't listen to people who aren't godly. They don't walk on the path of sinners, those whose lifestyles are simply against God, not only in their, their, their minds but in their actions. And then they also don't join a group of mockers. These are the folks who have disdain for God. They don't want anything to do with Him whatsoever. They don't like His people. They see sin as no big deal. What does it say then? Instead, He delights. So instead of those things, here's what He does. He looks at God's Word and He doesn't see oppression. He doesn't see a, a beat down. He sees joy and direction. His GPS, His touring plan at Disney is found in the book that God has given Him. He delights in the Lord's instructions, all of it. And then he says, and he meditates on it day and night. That word meditate, as I told you last week, doesn't mean that you clear your mind of everything and you sit in some transformed state of mind and you chant or whatever. Biblical meditation means you fill your mind with the Scripture and the things of God. You have a conversation with yourself about it throughout the day. What does it mean? How can I apply it? And that, the psalmist says, is the habit of the godly person. What is the result of that? 
You see the key words. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. We're talking about, in the, the historical context, geographically, a very dry area. It didn't rain much, so they had to make sure that their fruit trees would be near a source of water. So they would either plant them on the riverbank or dig a canal to bring water somewhere else and plant them there. Why? Because they couldn't get water anywhere else. You see how this is talking about the person who, who delights in God's Word is just like a tree that's been planted right next to the water so it receives constant nourishment and it becomes strong and it becomes healthy and it bears its fruit in season. It's useful, it's beautiful, it's productive. It shows evidence that it's rooted in God's Word and it produces that fruit at the right time. Always mature. Its leaf does not wither, it's permanent. This person isn't going away just because the winter time of life hits. Then he says, whatever he does prospers. Well, I like that part. Boy, whatever I do is going to prosper. Well, now I think we first have to understand that this is imagery to some degree, and this is not a guarantee that if you follow God and you start a business endeavor, that you can now make as much money as you want because you're going to prosper no matter what. At the same time, if you think about the reality of it, there is always a spiritual blessing, a spiritual prosperity that comes with following the Lord. And many times, not a guarantee, but in many cases, those who follow the Lord find themselves wiser than the people who don't. And they make good decisions. They become good spouses and good parents and good grandparents and good managers of money and good business owners. And they become people who make good decisions. And they are blessed in many cases, not every single time, because they followed God's word. It's pretty simple. Then he says, the wicked are not like this. There in verse 4. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, puts it this way. The, the, the wicked are not like this. Not at all. They're not at all like this. Instead, it says, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Now, I did a little, just a little background study on what chaff is. You can look this up. I'm showing you, okay, showing you how, how do you go through, look for the key words. What do they mean? The word chaff, you think, what in the world does that mean? I don't, we don't talk about chaff much today. Maybe you're a farmer and you've brought that word up and people look at you like you're nuts even though you're a farmer and you know what you're talking about. But the word chaff there takes us back to ancient farming techniques. Here's what they do. They harvest their grain. They bring it in put it on a stone threshing floor. They walk their oxen around on it to kind of stamp it out and separate the grain from the husk. Then what they do is grab a shovel or some kind of fork and they throw it into the wind. And guess what happens? The heavy stuff, the grain that's useful, the stuff they want, falls back to the ground. And the chaff, the useless stuff that's been separated, what? Blows away. Think about it. What's he saying here? He's saying the person who is rooted in God's word, even though here it comes and you're separated and so on, when you're tossed up into the air, you will see the value of God's people because they will remain after all the other junk has been blown away. He's saying those who don't live under God's protection, those who don't live in relationship with God, are like those useless pieces of chaff that are blown away. They may experience some great benefits here on earth, and people may think they're something, but in the end, they're blown away. Absolutely useless. Let it sink in. Let the imagery speak to you. The consequences of the godless lifestyle, the godless and sinful lifestyle, that's been described previously as wicked sinners and mockers, that leads ultimately to a worthless and useless existence in God's eyes, no matter what the world thinks of you. And then he says they won't survive the judgment. They won't be able to stand or to be in the community of, a, of the righteous. There is a day of separation that is coming, and it can be clearly seen already, I believe. 
The fruit, Jesus says, is what you'll recognize my disciples by. You'll know them by their fruit. We can already clearly see that some are on one path and some are on another. Then he says in conclusion of this particular psalm, he said, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. God looks out. He cares for his people. They can be confident before him. If you're a believer in Jesus, let me tell you this. Even in your sin, though we must always fear God and certainly Uh, Much of our moral decay in our society is because we don't fear God. But those who are believers in Jesus are covered by the blood of Jesus. And we can therefore approach God with confidence that we are in His Son, Christ Jesus. And He will receive us each and every time. We stand with confidence, even in our imperfections and our sinfulness, if we have come through Jesus Christ. But He says, the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Without God's blessing, without His presence in their lives, the ungodly continue down a path that eventually leads to their destruction for all eternity, no matter how good they seem to have it here on earth. So we look at the structure. We see this contrast. We look at the key words, and we begin to understand what the passage is talking about. And then I would encourage you, as you're looking for original meaning, to just summarize. Here's what I really believe this passage is talking about, and that's what you'll see at the top of your bulletin on the back, the truth from Psalm chapter 1. Here's the sentence I wrote. The road to a blessed life is paved with consistent study and application of the Bible. I'm using some of the terminology there from the passage itself, the path of sinners and so on, the meditation, how happy is the man. And so to me, if I evaluate this particular passage of Scripture and I look at its structure and I look at the context and I look at the keywords and so on, I think I can come pretty close to saying, you know what, I really believe this is what it's saying here. The road to a blessed life is paved with consistent study and application of the Bible. It seems to be how this person who is blessed has gotten there is consistent study and consistent application of the Bible. Now, you can make that sentence a little bit longer and say, you know, on the flip side, the road to destruction is paved with an absolute disregard for God and His Word. You could continue that, and you may do that in your own study. You look for the supporting truths. Well, that's the central idea. What else does he say there? Well, a blessed life avoids sin and sinful influences, does not stand and see mockers and path of sinners and so on. A a blessed life is deeply rooted in God's Word. What does he say? Planted like a tree, meditating on it day and night. And a blessed life has confidence before the Lord. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. And then the flip side is, well, the wicked life gets progressively more sinful. It's ultimately useless, and it's worthless, and it leads to eternal destruction. You see how it all fits together. So you have the context, which drives the meaning, and eventually which drives the modern application. It's the last thing there on your bulletin. Don't pack up just yet. Just another moment. Because I think that right here is where we often get really messed up. Many times what we do is we skip to this step, or we stop before this step. One of the two typically happens in the lives of many believers. We skip to the step where it says, what does this mean to me? The wrong question to ask up front when you're studying the Scripture. Or we study the Scripture and we say, well, I, I know exactly what it means. But what are you doing about it? I don't know what to do about it. I don't know. We either jump to this too quickly or we, we skip over it altogether. If context drives original meaning, original meaning drives modern application. One thing to help you understand how do I apply the Scripture is to look for how the writer insisted that they, they who read it first apply it. I mean, if you think about Psalm chapter 1, the original application here, they were to value God's Word. I mean, you see that very clearly. God's Word to them was to be something that they were to delight in. They're to avoid the influence of those who are ungodly. It's pretty clear. 
He's not mixing his words too much there. They're, avoid, they're to avoid the habits and the people that lead them into sin, and they're to avoid those who thumb their nose at God and his word. They're to view God's word as a benefit, not a detriment to their lives. They're to see the Psalms, since this is an introduction, as a guidebook for relating to God. And they're to leverage their lives toward whatever has eternal value, rather than what will blow away as chaff. And when you think about application, and you see, well, here's what he's wanting them to do. The question then becomes, what about me? What about us? If you're going to figure that out, I'd encourage you to ask, well, what's the same about these people and me? What's different about them and me? What situations, what issues are being raised? What, what's going on in their lives and in this particular passage of Scripture that's really similar to what everybody experiences just because you're human? And as you begin to think about those things, and you may have to think hard about that, you'll see some specifics that are the same today. Well, there's still two paths to take today. There's the narrow road that leads to life and the wide road that leads to destruction. Well, that hasn't changed. You see that, that two uh, results are, are possible. Like I said, life, destruction. One road, other road. There's still ungodly advice available today. There's still a way that most people will go. There's still a growing number of people who have a disdain for God and His people. The sinners, the mockers, the advice of the wicked. That's still today. There's still a wasteland that we live in that will not bring us nourishment from God. So we must be planted by His streams of irrigation. We see that as God's Word. We see how there are still those who live according to God's Word and they are still strong and enduring. And they produce spiritual fruit. So what do you do? Well, this passage of Scripture lends itself to a pretty direct application, much like it was then. You avoid sinful influences. Take a hard look, and I mean this, the truth from this passage of Scripture. Take a hard look at what you're allowing to influence your life. Whatever it may be. You say, well, I don't run with with the wrong crowd. Maybe not, but what is your intake? What's, what's What's influencing your life so much that you just do it now as second nature? What is it? Avoid sinful, influ- sinful influences. Uh, he says there to, uh, to delight in the Lord's instruction. Meditate on it. Right? Do whatever it takes to internalize God's Word. You may need to plan for it. You may need to get up earlier. You may need to stay up later. You may need to take your lunch break or coffee break or whatever it is and say, I'm going to spend this 15 minutes, this 30 minutes, and while I eat, while I drink coffee, whatever it may be, I'm going to read a short passage of Scripture. I'm going to do whatever I can. Then he also talks about bearing fruit. We don't just internalize it. We live it out. God's Word must be lived out. And then I think a part maybe that we overlook sometimes is, it says, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Stand with confidence before God, receiving His love and His grace, and basking not in your own glory before Him, but in your own humility and sinfulness that's been trumped by His grace and His glory. This week, I want to give you a little bit of homework. I'm going to preach next week the final message in this series called Responsibility with God's Word. And the the sermon will come from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So write that down somewhere. Deuteronomy chapter 6. All right, here's it. Simple. Simple this week. I'm telling you, it can't get any easier than this. All right, you ought to slap me high five walking out the door. Thank you so much. You're the greatest. Not really, but maybe you'll do that. And so Deuteronomy 6, if you want to abbreviate that, it's DT period. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Read it every single day. There's your reading plan for this week. That was the first thing I told you, right? Have a a reading plan. This week, read it every single day. 25 verses. That's all it is. One chapter. Read it every single day. What was the second thing I said? Ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance. So before you read it, Holy Spirit, please help me to understand what this means and how I should apply it. 
You may use different words than that, but ask for the Holy Spirit's got it. Then what was the next thing I said? Context. So maybe you read just a little before, maybe just a little after, or maybe you, you get into a study Bible where you look up online and say, who wrote the book of Deuteronomy? When was it written? To whom was it written? What are they going through when they receive these words? Who's speaking in this particular chapter? What's going on? Maybe you just do a little homework. So you read it, asking for the Holy Spirit's guidance. You look for the context. And as you read it and you look at the, the structure and some of the key words and what's going on and events and so on and people, this week, maybe, maybe first of all you do this or maybe at the end of the week in your Bible or on a notebook or something, just write, here's what I think is the main idea. Here's what is trying to be communicated right here by this author. So you arrive at original meaning. And then consider, how does the timeless truth from that chapter apply to me as an individual, to my family, to my business, to society as a whole, to our church, or whatever it may be that comes to mind? How then should we respond? That's your homework for this week. There's your reading plan. There's your prayer to pray, your context to gather, your original meaning to arrive at, and your application to live out. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, the Word says that the very living Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Lord, we recognize that Your most glorious moments were the ones in which You demonstrated Your great love and Your grace toward us on the cross and at the resurrection. So Lord, may we, as we see in Psalm chapter 1, be wise to internalize the great story of your salvation, to understand it and to call on the name of Jesus alone for our forgiveness and our eternal life. Or may one day we be not found apart from you at the judgment, but clinging to you more than we ever have. Lord, I pray for those who need to, to begin to interact with your word. We need, Lord, not only a fish on Sunday mornings, but need to be fishing every single day. That includes me and that includes all of us. So God, challenge us and motivate us. Open your word to us, Lord. We, we want to know it. We want to understand it. We want to live it out. Help us today, Lord, as we leave to, to do the simple homework of reading and studying Deuteronomy chapter 6 this week. Make it real to us. Plant us deep, Lord, we pray in your word. And in the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen.